Thank you, worship team. If you all will turn to 1 Peter with me today, 1 Peter chapter 2. For some of you uh, deep thinkers, I've got a couple questions to start us off with. In case you're wondering, Pastor Sid has gone to a family reunion, and if you're online with us and you're wondering, aren't we in Timothy? We are, just not when I'm preaching. So we are in 1 Peter. Uh, question for you. Have you ever really wondered, what's going on? What's going on? Uh, sure, we, we are in this, in this world, we have wars, we have economies, we have politics, we have elections and governments. What's going on? We're told what's going on, but how many of you actually have a deeper question than what you're being told, and you wonder what's really going on in this world? Anybody? Just four or five of you like that? The rest of you are not deep thinkers. All right. So if you've ever gotten that feeling, I want to encourage you today, and my hope is this, that through the scriptures and the Holy Spirit, we as believers in Christ can really understand and know what's going on, and we can cooperate with what God is doing in our world. And I think having this in place will bring a sense of peace for us as followers of Christ. And it was God's desire to reveal this through 1 Peter. So, let me pray. We'll do a quick review of chapter 1, and then we will pick it up in chapter 2. Our Lord, we are thankful for this divine revelation through Peter to us today. And uh, we thank you for how you've revealed yourself uh, through your apostle here. And uh, Lord, as we seek to understand you, may we really understand what is going on. Maybe not on the surface, but below the surface, the real reality. Help us to grasp this in a way that allows us to grow up in our salvation. Allows us to rest upon you, Jesus, as our cornerstone. It allows us to... Uh, understand what you're truly building and working in our lives. We thank you for uh, the truth of this. Help us to understand it and live and walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, two times ago, we covered in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, you all who have faith in Jesus are exiled or pilgrims or sojourners. You don't belong. But the good news is you were chosen. And that makes all the difference. Then in verses 10 to 25, we talked about truly appreciating your salvation. Essentially this, there are check marks along the way that when we trust in Christ as Savior, there are check marks in verses 10 to 25 that just indicate whether or not you're really appreciating this wonderful free gift paid for by Christ. And some of the check marks are, are you growing in holiness? Are you actually growing in appreciation for the word of God? Are you learning to love other believers deeply from the heart? And are you understanding how short your life is in relationship to the eternalness of the word of God? So that's chapter one. We're going to pick it up in chapter two. And he says this in very first, first word, therefore. In other words, in light of one, let's look at two. Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Verse 4. 
As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by human beings, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builder reject, builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So let's take some time. We're going to march back through that text together. But you all see in the outline that I've provided there, our outline's very simple today. And did that intentionally. I want to encourage you with this, that we're just going to keep it simple. Three simple concepts today in the text. The first one we're going to see in verses 1 through 3 is that God desires his babies to grow up in their salvation. Now, this week in the Meeks family, I have, we know we've got five kids, but this week in the Meeks family, we have two birthdays in our house. I will have an 18-year-old by next Sunday. If any of you remember when we first moved here, he was two. So, man, life goes by fast. But I'm watching my children grow. And as a parent, it's exciting. Anya and I love to be able to see our kids just grow. And they're starting to dwarf me. It's exciting. It's neat. But something definitely better than physical growth. When you start to see your kids start to engage their spiritual life. Many of you have been praying for years, and you look for those little glimpses of hope in that it's not all this, it's a little bit of this and a lot of this. And a but when they start to see spiritual growth, nothing brings joy to the Christian parent like a kid walking in spiritual truth. And I believe that desire is rooted in God's desire for us. So let's look at the text. It says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Some of your translations say lay aside, or put away, or get rid of. It's the idea behind if it's winter, and it gets warm, and you've got multiple layers, it's shed, get rid of, take off, throw to the side, right? And this is a command to believers, and he says, get rid of malice. Now, we can march through these, and these all become like a blur. You can just glance at it, and they become a blur. So I just want to march down through this. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and these are present in your life, he's calling us to get rid of them. So the first one is get rid of malice. A malice is a desire to cause pain, injury, or distress to someone else. That's part of who you are as a believer in Jesus. You're called to throw that off. That has no part in a child of God. We're also called to get rid of deceit. That's a distortion of the truth for the purpose of misleading. 
distortions of the truth for the purpose of misleading. That sounds like our news. That sounds like our own social media posts. Again, we can be quick about pointing to the news, but how many times do we take that picture and turn just the right way? Distortions of the truth for the purpose of misleading. Right? Yes, I'm right on my way. I'm on my way. I'm just a few minutes. Haven't left the house yet. Distortions of the truth for the purpose of misleading. He says, this is not so for those who are born again. Let no deceit be a part of who we are. Hypocrisy. Behavior that contradicts what one declares to believe or feel. This discredits the faith as that we proclaim in our society. And so he's calling us to just rid ourselves of the gap between what we say and what we do. Now, I just want to take a brief moment and explain that it is hypocritical to call other people hypocrites. Because we all have a level of hypocrisy in our walk. We all do. And it's an invitation and a command to throw this off. So as we walk with Christ and as we grow, the invitation is to look for the gaps and ask by God's grace to remove or close those gaps or remove them from our life. Then he says, get rid of envy. That's the feeling of discontent or covetousness with regard to someone else's possessions or success. Do we see this in society? Isn't this what riots are going? Wait, wait, what? Yeah. Envy. We're in a cultural revolution built upon envy. And lastly, rid ourselves of slander or speaking evil of every kind. And that's really just to harm one's character by what you say. These ought not be for the child of God. And it's really easy for us to see this in the world. We can look around and go, yeah, this is in our society. But actually, this text was written to believers. Calling us to rid ourselves of these things. And we can see this in the world, but we're called to look inward. And uh, if you all could be a fly in the wall of a lot of the counseling meetings that we as pastors have you would understand that these are very much alive and present in Open Door Bible Church, in us as a church family. And perhaps I, I would hope that as we cover this, if these are present in your life, that the Spirit of God would gently insert the finger into the rib and call you to humble yourself and acknowledge this as sin before God and maybe even go make it right this weekend with another brother or sister in Christ. When we humble ourselves in these ways, we realize and we acknowledge that something really is going on below the surface. Look at verse 2. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. So he gives us the word picture of being a, like a newborn baby. And we understand that, you know, we can all go back to our birthday. That's when I came into this world, right? And parents desire not only their kids to be born, but they want them to grow up. In fact, we get alarmed when we don't see growth. In the same way, God wants us to be spiritually reborn. You have to be. But he's not just interested in a rebirth. He's interested in a rebirth plus growth. 
That is what God is interested in. And then he says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. The word crave is really desire or cry out. And the word spiritual milk is literally the pure milk of the word. And let's just state the fact. Nobody has to tell a breastfeeding child to eat. They crave it. And many of you fathers have taken the back seat for six to nine months for a child who craves milk every four to six hours. Anybody? Come on. Maybe just because we have five kids. Yep. If you've had kids and they've been fed, I will tell you, you take the back seat. And as we mature as parents, we come to realize that this is exhausting, and yet God has built into that child a craving for the milk that provides everything they need for nutrients to grow and thrive. God built that in there. We know babies eat, babies sleep, and they fill their diaper. And all while parents are exhausted, God is providing this miraculous growth. And sometimes it takes a picture to make you realize, oh my word, you have grown so much, right? But spiritual growth as a child of God is always marked by aggressively reading, believing, and applying the word of God. Spiritual growth in the life of the Christian is marked by aggressively reading, believing, and applying the word of God. So he commands us like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. What we need as newborn babies is more of God's word. We don't need the verse of the day. We don't need Jesus calling. We don't need another study. We need more of the pure spiritual milk of the word. We need more of the word of God. As Christians, growing up is anchored in and established on, feeding on, the pure word. Now, why is this word so important? Because it is the foundation for all of the Christian life. Not only that, it's the foundation of society. And when it's not, there's a vacuum that happens. That when we seek to grow up, not on the word of God, there's gaps in our nutrition and health. But when Christians don't feed on the pure word of God, they no longer are influencers in society. And as a result, society pays the price as well. I want to read you a little excerpt. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to read it to you because this morning I was reading this. It's out of How Should We Then Live? And in talking about when society loses any sense of Christian influence. It says, if, if there are no absolutes, that is the word of God, and we do not like either the chaos of hedonism, that means everybody doing what they want, or the absoluteness of 51% vote, which is where we are, only one other alternative is left. One man or an elite giving authority, authoritative arbitrary absolutes. Here's a simple but profound rule. If there are no absolutes by which to judge a society, then society is absolute. 
So when we don't have the pure word of God as our standard, society then forms its own. So I just want to give you a little glimpse into where we are as culture. Here it is. As the Christian consensus dies, people who are anchored in the word of God, there are not many sociological alternatives, meaning there aren't a lot of options for us. Here it is. One possibility, see if this describes where we're at as society. One possibility is the absoluteness of the 51% vote. In the days of a more Christian culture, a lone individual with the Bible could judge and warn society regardless of the majority vote because there was an absolute by which to judge. There was an absolute for both morals and law. But to the extent that the Christian consensus is gone, this absolute is gone as a social force. Let us remember that on the basis of the absoluteness of 51% vote, Hitler was perfectly entitled to do as he wished if he had the popular support. On this basis, law and morals become a matter of averages. And on this basis, if the majority voted to support it, it would become the right to kill the old, the incurably ill, the insane, or babies. And other groups would, could be declared non-persons. No voice could be raised against it. Why is it essential for we as Christians to grow on the word of God? Because without the word of God, we have no basis to operate our reality on. We are in a society today that has lost all concept of being grounded in the word of God. And again, we can talk about what's going on out there, but the reality is, as we seek to grow, when we don't anchor our growth on the full, pure word of God, we no longer are anchored in truth and reality, and we as a church seek to be liked by a shifting society. It's really important, friends, and God wanted us to know this through Peter, that like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, the pure milk of the word. And he says, thereby growing up in your salvation, literally growing up in respect to your salvation. And if your salvation is primarily about securing your ticket into heaven, you've not grown up. I'm going to repeat that. If your salvation is primarily just about getting a ticket into heaven, you have not grown up. There's so much more going on, and we are to grow up in this experience and interaction with our salvation. The Christian's new life cannot grow, according to verse 1, cannot grow unless we are actively ridding ourselves of these sins, because they will choke out the effectiveness of the word of God in our lives. So he says, so, so that by the pure spiritual uh, milk you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, you've tasted it, now grow up in it. And this single phrase that I believe describes Jesus the Messiah is grace and truth. And as we've come to taste his grace, given to us at the cross, we're called to scour the word for his truth that is intended to change us 
and mold us. So why is Peter calling us to this lifestyle and this mindset of ridding ourselves of sin and taking on the mindset of a baby that's growing up in the pure spiritual, pure spiritual milk? Because it's not about you. There's something else going on. Now, when a baby's born, there is baby has no concept of baby and mom. Baby just knows baby wants milk and mom provides it. I want milk now. There's no separation of where mom ends and where baby ends and mom begins. But as children grow up, it is the responsibility of parents to teach children that it's not about them. That they're not the center of the universe. And we all know that family member or friend who has not learned this. Babies have to be taught and adults do too. But we as people tend to approach life from an individualistic, self-centered perspective. Maybe perhaps the first time you walked into open door. Do I like the music? Did somebody say hi to me? Is it warm in here? Is it cold in here? Does the music have too much rhythm? Is, does it not have enough? Is there fog and smoke machines? We approach even our going to church to worship God from a self-centered point of view. And keeping this in mind that there is something else going on than what I want is really crucial. So why be pure? Why be holy? Why aggressively root out this sin? Because none of us, because something else is going on, we're going to get to it. None of us sins privately. Did you know that? Those hidden sins that you think are hidden, like pornography or affairs or gossip or resentment or bitterness, do you understand? None of us sins privately. Our private life and our public life as a child of God is being built into something with the larger church family. God is forming a painting, a tapestry. He's forming a building collectively of all of us. And we're going to see that in a minute. That we each, as born-again Christians, as travelers, have an obligation to pursue holiness because our choices, our spiritual choices, God is using to build into something collectively. He's forming a building. And he is making something, he's doing something, and he's building something in our lives. Something clearly is going on. So point number one, God desires his babies to grow up in their salvation. Point number two, verses four through eight, we're going to see a house must start with the right foundation. Okay, Nathan was right. When we, a couple different times we bought houses in port, it seemed like there's a lot of homes with those steel beams that did correct the foundation. But a spiritual house is being built here for an eternal purpose. Now, this is the third time we're going to see, this is the third time that Peter compares us to something. First time in uh, chapter 1, verse 24, we're compared to grass. The second time we're compared to something, we're compared to babies. Let's read what, what verses 4 through 8 says we are compared to. As you come to him, the living stone... Rejected by human beings, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, 
offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, we are being compared to a stone. That's flattering. In 2009, I took my first mission trip to Belize with Open Door. Anybody in the house that went with me on that one? Most of them were high school, college students. The first trip. And the church that we were partnering with is called New Jerusalem Baptist Church down in Belize. And we had scheduled uh, construction in the morning on their church building. They'd been praying and trusting God for that. They had a foundation, and we were going to start laying block. And I was under the impression that we were going to come provide labor, and then we're going to do vacation Bible schools in the afternoon. And when we showed up on the first morning, uh, we had somebody with the mission we were working for and the pastor there, and they had a pile of block, and they said, go. And let me explain, out of the 16 people, I was the one with the most experience. And at that time, I really had not remodeled the three houses I had done. I had framed houses with Nathan for a year, and I never made it past a grunt. And I've never laid a block or brick in my life. And I quickly realized this could be catastrophic if I took a bunch of teenagers and started laying block without an idea. Because we had this flat, smooth foundation. Somebody came and built that, and I realized... I started asking, like, okay, how far do you want this from the edge? Are we going to have a walkway around it? And I thought, there's no way. So we pulled together the resources of all these teenagers, and we paid two local guys who knew what they were doing because there's no way my name was going to be on that first block laid. So check this out. Verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone. In other words, when a sinner comes to faith in Jesus... There is so much more going on. And as we uh, relate to him, we primarily focus on this great exchange. And that great exchange is that I believe that Jesus died and rose again. And at that moment, my sin and the punishment of my sin was placed on him. And his righteousness and life was given to me. I call it the great exchange. It's awesome. And we primarily focus on that when we talk about our salvation. But if we stop there, we're actually going to see that Peter is saying that we are in for a spiritual wake-up call. There is so much more going on. And understanding Christ as the living stone, and then understanding what we are as living stones is huge. So Peter says that as you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, he's supporting what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ not only died for our sins, but he rose again. Paul goes to great pain, a whole chapter, to reinforce that Jesus really did, in fact, rise from the dead, and everything hinges on his resurrection. Peter is here referring to him as the living stone, but the text says here he was rejected by human beings, but chosen by God. We know him as Jesus of Nazareth. And in John 1, it was said, can anything good come from Nazareth? And throughout his ministry in the Gospels, Jesus was continuously rejected by the religious leaders. And then one week before his death, he was ushered into Jerusalem with a celebration. He's our king. And that same audience within a week was ready and willing to crucify him. You probably know the verse. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. So the text says... 
he was uh, rejected by human beings, but chosen by God and precious to him. Look down at chapter 1, verse 20. Peter is referring back to this, understanding that Jesus Christ is precious and chosen. He was chosen before the foundations of the world were laid. God chose to send his son Jesus to pay the price for sin. And it says he was precious to him. And the reason he's precious is because he's the one and only. And we covered that last time I preached that Jesus Christ is alone sufficient to pay for our sins. Alone. So, Philippians 2 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So let's read on. That Jesus is the living stone rejected by human beings, chosen by God and precious to him. Verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So you are referred to as a stone. And if you are born again, this is your reality. The Bible says if you trust that Jesus Christ died and rose again for your sins, you are born again. You are a, not a dead stone, but a living stone. And as I said before, a stone by itself feels rather unappealing because we like to think of ourselves as a gem. But we're called a stone. But when put together, many stones, when put together in an orderly way, they, on top of a cornerstone, form a wall for a building that can last hundreds even thousands of years. And a stone by itself may be insignificant, but when put together on a cornerstone in an intentional way, forms a building that lasts for hundreds, even thousands of years. And the text is saying, so think of yourselves in this way. Christ is the capital living stone. And by faith in Jesus Christ, so think of yourself as living stones, plural, meaning all of us as believers, and that believers together are living stones forming something. So what's the purpose of the living stone? It says this, you are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus. Now, the book of Hebrews goes to great lengths to help us understand that this description is of the Messiah. I want to read you. I know it's a little bit long, but I want to read it to you out of Hebrews 3. It says this, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, just listen to what this gives us uh, light on what he just said here. Brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. Just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness that uh, that would be spoken by God in the future. 
But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house. He goes on to say in Hebrews 7, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, he's blameless, he's pure, he's set apart from sinners, and exalted to the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Listen to this. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So verse 5 is saying that God wants so much more than just to give us a ticket to heaven. He wants to build us into a spiritual house together as believers. This is actually one of the greatest pains of your pastors over the course of this last year. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got a thought. Everybody thinks one way or another. And we're seeing a failure to understand that God is building a spiritual house with this church family with us as believers together. And it takes many stones to build a house. And God has sovereignly put you in this family. He's putting each of us in place, in Christ, and he wants us to so identify with Christ as the living stone that we willingly submit to where he places us as living stones in the body of Christ. As we trust him, as we live in him, as we lean on him, we see in the text that we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, verses 6 through 8, Peter is going to lay down three Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, like a track, like a railroad track, to help us understand them. So let's read at least verses 6 and 7, because we're going to help us understand what it means that Jesus Christ is a stone. Verse 6 and 7 says, For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, or Jerusalem, a chosen and precious, there's, he's that on that theme of precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. Now we'll pause there. Jesus is the cornerstone, and he is precious to us who believe. We know that without the cornerstone, the wall that we participate in would crumble. And as time goes on, we who believe see him as more precious. Can you relate to that? The older you get, the longer you've known the Lord, you realize how precious Jesus Christ is. And we see him as the foundation anchor of our existence. And the song, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, All Other Ground is Sinking Sand, it actually connects with us more and more, doesn't it? as you realize the desires of society, the expectations of culture are wholly inadequate. And we'll see what, what goes on for those who don't believe here in verses 7 and 8. But according to verses 6 and 7, he was rejected by men but became the essential cornerstone for those who believe. There is no other name given among heaven, given under heaven by which we must be saved. And for those who do believe, he is precious, and he's the cornerstone. But what about those who don't believe? It says this in the middle of verse 7. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, 
and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Now, things that make you uh, trip annoy you. And Jesus is referred to here as a, not just a cornerstone, but a stone in the backyard that you're mowing. A stone on the trail that you're hiking. For people who do not believe in him, he is referred to as a tripping stone. And again, things I trip over annoy me. It's like my children, the stuff in the garage that they don't put away, and I'm tripping over. It at best annoys me, and even sometimes enrages me. I actually can feel fury, like when I trip over stuff, when I've told one of my children to pick it up two, three, four times, I start to feel enraged. And this describes why Christ is so hated in virtually every culture of the world by those who do not believe in him. But he is so precious to people in every culture who do believe in him. So don't be surprised when the world hates Jesus. I'm sure you've asked this question as a follower of Christ. Why is it that it's okay to support Islam or to support this or that or this or that, but when you bring up the name Jesus, it's offensive? Why is that taboo? Why is it that you can actually bring up the name God? But when you bring up the name Jesus, people become violently opposed to it. Why is that? The text says, for those who do not believe, he becomes a tripping hazard. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, do not, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Same theme, right? What we've learned in Peter so far. And that is why the world hates you. And I just want to say, friends, that Christ in the gospel is offensive to a prideful man. It's offensive. So I have a son who's lifeguarding this summer. And uh, I am learning that, did you know that lifeguards are loved by those who are truly drowning? In fact, uh, people who are truly drowning lose all sense of pride. And if you've ever been in that place, you don't care if you're a 250-pound, muscle-bound man. If there's a 105-pound, 16-year-old girl who can save your life, you'll take it. Right? That when you're drowning, all pride goes out the door, and you'll take the life resource. If your pride is intact and think you don't need spiritual saving, Jesus is at best viewed as unnecessary. But if your pride is intact and you're told that you're a sinner in violation of a holy God, he's offensive. Why do I need to be saved? I'm perfectly fine. Maybe some of you in your own spiritual stories have been at a place where you heard the gospel that Christ died and rose again for my sins and you thought, I don't need saving. The gospel in Christ is offensive to those who have their pride intact. As the lifeguard is, so is Christ. Absolutely essential and very welcome for those who understand their situation. 
Verse 8 goes on to say, and they stumble because they disobey the message. And we looked earlier in chapter 1, verse 22, that the obedience here is belief. And so unbelief is disobeying the message. And it goes on to say that, which is also what they were destined for. So they were not appointed by God to disbelief or disobedience, but they were being judged or condemned by God because of their unbelief. Now, here is the warning of Scripture I want to give with you, and we'll move on to our third point for the day. Hebrews 3. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you have a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in rebellion. So Jesus Christ is the only foundation to come to God our maker. Do you believe in him? Is your life built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ as the cornerstone? And if that's the case, you are in a spiritual construction project. You and I are each a stone in the body of Christ being built into something. And what is that something? Let's look at it. Verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we see our final point there. God is building. This is what God's doing below the surface that you don't always see. That God is building a spiritual house of worship through his born-again kids. That's what God's doing. And let's cooperate with this construction project in our lives and support it in the lives of others. Let's give each other grace to be under God's construction project. Let's spur each other on in truth in this construction project. But let's not just be focused just on our ticket to heaven Let's focus on, yes, God wants us to be born again. God wants to secure an eternal relationship with us through Christ. But God wants us to grow up in our salvation so that we are built together to form a spiritual house. Now, this description in verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. This is the same description that Jesus himself gets throughout the book of Hebrews. This should cause us to go, what? Jesus the Messiah is called chosen and royal and holy. And then now we're called this? Jesus was chosen before the foundation of the world, and in Christ you are chosen. He is a royal priesthood because he is the Son of God who forever sees the Father and um, intercedes for us. We are declared chosen and royalty by God. And by faith in Christ, we have absence to God. Lastly, we're called a holy nation. Chapter 1, verse 16, God is referred to as holy. And God himself sees us as holy in Christ. And we are called to learn to walk in that holiness. And then lastly, we're called God's, God's special possession. His very own. I want to encourage you, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. You can keep your hand in 1 Peter, but Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to close off with this in this last point. 
Ephesians chapter 2. Turn to your left. Ephesians chapter 2. And I think this gives us a real clear um, a real clear understanding of what Paul is talking about, referring to what Peter's talking about. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. That God is building something. He says, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. Wait a minute here. Didn't Peter say that you're foreigners and strangers? You're no longer foreigners and strangers with God. But fellow citizens with God, people... God's people and also members of his household. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, we too are being built together. Notice, there's no, I am a rock, I am an island. There's none of this. There is We are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Guys, something's going on. We're being built together. If you're experiencing friction with another believer in Christ, did you know that God, who's laying the foundation, who's the builder, put you next to that person for a reason? And that is to create a house of worship. So he made us for his people. He showed us mercy. He built a house. He's building a spiritual house for one purpose, and that is this, in verse 9, that we may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were made to praise the Lord. Morning, noon, and night, when you feel like it and when you don't. And we are being built collectively as a spiritual house of worship for our great God. If I could sum it up, let's scrap the word evangelism. Let's scrap the, all, the, all the steps and the ABCs and the one, two, threes. Let's just take on the posture of declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. If we just went through our life saying, I just want to praise God and tell people the wonderful things the Lord has done in my life, we would be evangelizing. We'd be discipling people and we'd be pointing people to him. So in closing, we have no greater calling or purpose than this. Trust in Christ, our Savior, the cornerstone. There's no other foundation that we can build our life on. Number two, grow up in your salvation through the consuming of the word of God and ridding ourselves of these sins listed here. God wants us to so identify with him as the living stone that we see ourselves being built into something. And lastly, fulfill your purpose in declaring his praises for calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what's really going on? God's building a house. He's looking for worshipers to worship him in spirit and truth. And so I want to encourage you with this. Whether it's the car ride or your workplace or your home or your neighbors or your family get-togethers, Let's spend some time cooperating with him on this journey of the building of the spiritual community, making a spiritual house of worship, declaring his praises, and establishing his holiness in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, your word is truth, and we got to see that you want your kids to grow up. We understand that Jesus Christ alone 
is the foundation, the cornerstone to build our lives on. Lord, forgive us that of the times that we get distracted with um, our opinions, even our overinflated view of self. Lord, we want to grow up in our salvation and learn to rely on the pure milk of the word. Lord, even as we sing now, help us to really own the fact that our highest calling is to worship you and glorify you in whatever capacity, whatever stage of life we're in. Your word establishes the value of this life and it gives us direction to understand that we exist to praise you. Help us to grasp that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us?